Well, good morning, family. It is good to be with you. Take just a second and make your way back to your seats. Make an appointment with the person you're speaking with right now. Right after church, we're going to reconnect. It is good to be together. What a beautiful day. Much needed snow this weekend. And man, full of life and energy in this house. I have a few very, very brief announcements. First, I want to give a nod to we began table groups this last week. And they were fantastic. We had a fantastic group on Tuesday. I talked to Sidron yesterday about their group. How many of y'all are registered for a table group or attended without registering, which is fine. We just need you to register after the fact. If it is not too late, about half the groups are full and half are not. You can register on the website. That's all I'm going to say. If you're not showing up, you're missing out. God is going to be doing a lot of deep, intimate, communal work in our table groups this semester. Second, we had a fantastic family talk. That seems to be the word. I guess I'm just using fantastic all the time this morning. But our family talk last week was really great. It was a little different than normal. We didn't have all the pomp and circumstance that we had in December with a big celebration. But we had a great talk together about where are we? New Life Midtown, a lot has happened in the last two years. So we posed a handful of questions and we had table discussions. And I'm letting you know for two reasons. One, so that you can know that we want to hear from you. Your voice is important. This is not our church. First of all, this is Jesus Christ Church. But your voice matters. We want to know your perspective. We want to know your pain points. We want to know where you're flourishing and where you'd like to flourish. So we had a conversation around that last week and it was wonderful. So I want to encourage you. The second reason is so that the next time we have a family talk, if New Life Midtown is a place where you are committed and invested, please do your best to attend and we'll do our best to not schedule it during the AFC championship. How's that? Deal. 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 Yeah. Oh my. Last last announcement for those who are in their 20s and 30s, our 20s and 30s ministry is having their first quarterly event tonight right here in the building at 5.30 led by Dr. Aaron Brown. There's going to be uh, some food and also a conversation around the topic of grief. So much has happened the last few years, and one of the things that is really important that the church has tended to neglect is the process of emotional grief and the way that we become healthy by learning to grieve well. So Aaron is bringing in uh, a guest speaker who is a, a therapist with a specialty in grief. So if you are in your 20s and 30s and that is interesting, appealing to you at all, I'd encourage you to come 5.30 tonight. Those are the end of the announcements. Pastor Jade, bring us the word. Good, sir. Hey, guys. Good morning. Oh, Sadron, fantastic job this morning as usual. Uh, if you're here with us today for the first time, my name is Jay Duncan. My wife, Christy, and I have been here in the city for 17 years, 18 this August, and been in the same church. And we love Colorado Springs, and we love this house, and we love the New Life family. In fact, today, New Life East is celebrating their second birthday. Yeah, so they launched uh, February right before COVID hit. And so Pastor Andrew and his team had to basically birth and plant a church and navigate what all of us churches had to navigate, but he had to do that essentially from from start. And so uh, they weathered that well. They're growing and they're flourishing. So I texted him this morning and said, 
Happy birthday, New Life East. Your Midtown family loves you. And man, it's exciting to see what God's doing in the city. If you are here with us today for the first time, uh, right out here, sorry, there was a little bit of confusion, but right out here where you first walk in is our welcome center. And if today's your first day, we would love to be able to connect with you right there. There's a big kind of table looking thing that says welcome center. And we have people that are eager to connect with you Um, answer any questions that you might have relative to the church and find ways to get you connected and integrated into this house uh, if you're interested in learning more. Okay, can you do something for me? Can you just look at a neighbor and just smile at them and say, you look good today? Can you just tell them you look good today? I, I really do think there's something about that. And I do think that the Lord is cherished. Why are you? She's like, what, what is that? You did, you look good today, girl. I mean, you guys look good. You get, we need to hear that. That's spiritual warfare. I'm telling you today. Yeah, we're redefining what spiritual warfare is. There's joy in the house. And um, I really am. I'm legitimately excited to be here. Before I jump into the word, uh, I, have, I have another word. I have a pre-word for you today. And the pre-word is out of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And Everett wasn't prepared for this because the pre-word came in the, uh, in the worship time. But I just felt like the Lord wanted to remind somebody today that there is therefore now no condemnation Amen. for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The enemy's language is condemnation. That's, that's how he likes to talk. That's his native tongue. He's fluent in the language of condemnation. And he's fluent in speaking condemnation to you in a way that you know what that sounds like and you can recognize it because I think intuitively we are really great at condemning ourselves. It's part of the presence and the reality of sin in our lives. We're very, very keen on where we're not measuring up. We're very aware of how we're not hitting the mark. We're very aware of how maybe we're not good enough And the enemy just likes, he likes to listen to that inner dialogue and he likes to jump on and feed that. But the word of God is here to announce today that there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no condemnation. So when Sidron stands up here and he says that the Lord doesn't care what you did last night or even this morning, it's not that the Lord's not concerned about our growth. It's not that he's not concerned about our maturity or our sanctification or our development. It's just that God doesn't speak in the language of condemnation. Anytime God speaks to us in a way that calls us higher, oh, he got off the stool, easy now. Anytime that the Lord speaks to us in a way that calls us higher, he speaks to us in a way that makes us feel that we can do it. Right? It's like, okay, this may be difficult, but God with you, And by your grace, like Pastor Jonathan preached last week, that when you call me into these difficult places, the grace of God is the empowerment of God to fill in the gap between where I am and where I know that God is calling me to be. What the enemy tells you is you'll never make it. You'll never be good enough. You might as well quit. And you might as well just stay in this cycle of internal frustration and despair. But today I am praying that the power of God break every yoke of condemnation and despair and internal frustration that might be hanging on in the inside of us 
or in our imagination. So if that's for anybody today, can I just pray for you before we jump into the word? Lord, we thank you that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free. Say, set us free. From the law of sin and death. And Lord, we declare today that we are free. And that we break agreement with the inner dialogue of condemnation. Father, we refuse to entertain the voice of the enemy that tells us that we're not good enough. That tells us that we'll always be in this position. Father, we just say no. We refuse that. In fact, we bind it up, Lord. We just we say, like, you're, you're just contained right now. And we take you captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And the truth is that he and she whom the son sets free is free indeed. And we declare freedom, freedom to grow, freedom to change, freedom to recognize our cycles and our mistakes, freedom to break generational cycles of iniquity that feel very real, God. But by the power of the blood of Jesus, we declare that those cycles are broken and that by the grace of God, we move into greater realms of freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks for letting me get that word out. It was like a fire shut up in my bones, y'all. Uh, if you're new with us today or if you've missed a couple of Sundays, we've been on a series about who God is as Father. And it's been a very revelatory series for me, as, as simple as I'm trying to make the concepts of who God is. It's amazing Simple doesn't mean watered down. Right? Simple doesn't mean irrelevant. Simple doesn't mean elementary to the point of being like dumb. But simple can be powerful. And simple, I think, can return us in a way to an authenticity and a beauty and a power of who God is. And that really is the heart that Jonathan and I are working in as we're engineering this, this series together. And it's been very revelatory for me and it's been very challenging. It's been a little frustrating and sometimes because today I'm going to be talking about the God who's slow to anger. And I don't know what it is about the preaching yoke, but it's like whatever the assignment is to preach, it's almost like that you've got to work that out and test that out, uh, you know. And so here I am like studying on the God who's slow to anger and realizing how quick to anger I can be in my life. But I'm glad that it's, it's not a message about Jade. It's a message about God. It's not a message about how slow to anger I am. It's about us putting our eyes on the template, on the blueprint, on the original design of what it means to be a people that are slow to anger because we have a God who's slow to anger. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to go to the book of Exodus chapter 34. And I want to encourage you on your own time to read Exodus 32, 33, and 34. And also, if you haven't listened to the previous messages, each one of these messages are actually building on top of each other. They all stand alone. Uh, but when you go back and you hear some of these cornerstone revelations, you see how, particularly today, when we talk about the God who is slow to anger, it, it's really beneficial to hear that he is good and compassionate and gracious before we even entertain a conversation about God's anger. So a little bit of the background of this story, Moses makes a really massive mistake 
And God calls him up to the mountain to have a conversation about this mistake that he's made. And sandwiched in between Moses' mistake and God's conversation with him, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses and God have, I think, one of the most beautiful interchanges of trust and vulnerability and intimacy that, that I've seen in the scripture. There's, there's a lot of them, but this is one of them. And Moses is still getting to know who God is. And they're, they're kind of negotiating about whether or not Moses is still going to take these children of Israel further into the land of freedom and promise. And God essentially says, hey, you, you go ahead and take these guys. Like, they're yours now. And Moses is saying, no, 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 no. You called me. I was fine on the backside of a desert hanging out, taking care of sheep. My life was predictable. It was safe. It was a good life. And you're the one who called me out. And you've given me these millions of people that are pretty rebellious and pretty cantankerous. And, oh, God, I'm not going unless you go. God says, okay, I'm going to go with you. And then Moses says, in fact, I'm going to up the ante here. All my chips are on the table. Like, I need to know who you are. I need you to show me your glory. And this is where Exodus 34 picks up. And so God says, I will show you my glory. And in these verses here, this is God revealing who he is to Moses. Listen, in the context of Moses making a pretty significant mistake. So if you've ever felt like you've blown it, this is a really great story for you. Because God calls Moses close to him. And he says right here, he passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed, this is who I am, Moses. I am Yahweh. I am the God who is I am. I am the Lord, the Lord. And this is how God self-describes. Of all the words that God could choose, he doesn't start off and say, I'm the powerful God. Like Moses saw that. He saw God's power demonstrated in the 10 plagues. He saw God's power demonstrated when he split, literally split open the sea and held the walls of the sea back and brought millions of people through. God, like Moses knows that God is powerful. And I think it's actually part of the internal conflict of what's happening is that Moses knows you are so powerful, but can I trust you? And so God says, Moses, even before I self-describe as powerful, even before I self-describe as wise, son, I want you to know I'm compassionate. I'm a God who deeply feels. I'm not aloof. I'm not indifferent. I'm not out there. Like the things that affect you I am deeply, I'm involved in this thing. I'm all mixed up. I'm all wrapped up into the affairs of your life. It's powerful when you think about this. I'm compassionate and I'm gracious. And then the third characteristic that we're gonna land on today, which to be honest with you, it's, 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 a, little, it's a little confusing if I'm gonna be honest with you to some degree. Because God says, I'm slow to anger. And depending on your life story, just, just, just hearing the word anger in the same sentence with God might, might be a little nerve-wracking for you. Depending on your personal experience with anger, either expressing it or receiving it. I mean, the word anger itself is a highly emotive and highly volatile word. And I didn't like it. I, I, would have, I would have rather the scripture use a different, just, just use patient. 
In fact, the King James Version and the New King James Version say that he's long-suffering. It uses long-suffering right here, but almost every other translation, New American Standard, ESV, NIV, so many other translations, they use the word slow to anger. And I think it's... It's good for us. I wanted to sidestep this. In fact, I wish Jonathan would have preached this message. Like, I, give me grace all day long. Let him take the deep, heavy, hard theological concepts, right? God is slow to anger, which means that he still what? He can still be angered, right? So this is a massive topic, and I'm only going to skim the surface. And the purpose of this series is to help introduce us to the heart and the character and the nature of God. So we're not going to get too tied up in, in, in the very heavy theological realms of God's judgment and discipline and anger, but we, we are going to touch it. We're going to bump up against it a little bit. A couple of things that I think would help us as we set the table. Number one, God does not get angry like we get angry, right? He doesn't get angry like you may expect, so he doesn't get angry in the same way that we get angry, and he, and he doesn't get angry at the same things that we get angry about. Another thing I think is important for us to understand is that God's anger has a, has a context. And suffice it to stay, say that if we, if we trust the heart and the character and the nature of God, that human writers, inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit, are, are doing their best to give us accounts of God's interaction with humans in the course of human history, but, but they're limited. They're limited in time, and they're limited in scope, and they're limited in language, and they're limited even in their ability to grasp and communicate who God is. And this is why a lot of times, I'm going to use a really big theological word, this is why a lot of times the scriptures will use what's called anthropomorphism. Now, all that means is, attributing human characteristics to a God who is not seen as a, as, a, as a tactic and a tool, as a metaphor to help us try to wrap our minds around this God who really cannot be described. Does that make sense? And so God's anger um, is one of those e e emotions that we have an experience with, but it's, we really can't compare our anger to the anger of God, right? And in fact, I would say it's not wise to compare any of our human experiences or expressions to God because we're, we're playing on a completely different playing field, All right? Here's something else for us to think about. Uh, Christy said this yesterday. We were having a, a breakfast, with the family. And I said, guys, I need you to help me preach this message. And so I brought up the topic of the fact that, that God is slow to anger. And we took probably about an hour in, in, impromptu. And we just talked about this. And my oldest daughter, I thought this was so wise and so insightful. She said, well, you know, dad, I'm going to be honest. It, it's a little confusing because I hear you preach and I read scriptures that say that God is loving and he's kind and he's patient and he's good and he's gracious. And yet I see all these other scriptures where he's like, rain down fire. And he just, yeah. she's like, I'm confused. And I'm like, babe, I'm so glad you bring that up because I'm confused too. Yeah. And, and these are some of, I think, the complexities of scripture, but I think they're an invitation. And my caution to us today is that if, if we read scriptures out of context or if we read them from a paradigm of our own experience of pain or hurt, then we're going to see God negatively or wrongly. We're going to see him inaccurately. right? And then Christy said this to the family. She says, we have to know the Bible to understand God's character. But 
we also have to know God's character to understand the Bible. I was like, girl, you do pay attention when Jonathan preaches. <laughs> There's something here, guys. This is like a, this is like a hidden gem. Because when we, when we understand the fact that God is good, then we can interpret the confusing parts of Scripture through the lens that throughout the course of human history and, and cosmological history, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, we're saying his goodness is on display. Which means that even when there's things that don't look good, Lord, bring me into an understanding and a revelation of how your goodness is at work here, even if I don't initially understand it. Does that, does that make sense? Let me, let me kind of dumb this down. So not for your sake, for mine. So when I make decisions to, to discipline my kids or when I make decisions that maybe they don't like and I don't look or feel or seem good in that moment, no, you can't have five pieces of cheesecake. You can have one. One's enough. It's good. They're like, you are not good. Aaron Florian, I am cracking up. Where is Aaron at? Aaron Florian posts these little notes that her kids write about her. I am so mad at you. You are so mean, right? That's kind of a way that we, I think we feel about God sometimes. You're so mean. And, and, and if we can just slow down and get into the heart and the wisdom and the goodness of God, I think over the course of time and maturity, we will look back and go, my God. You, you really were good. And, and, and that happened, and it really was a demonstration of mercy and compassion and kindness and, and long-suffering. Okay, so here's another thing I think is important for us to understand, is that God's anger is always, always, always tempered and controlled by his cornerstone characteristics, which are his goodness and his compassion and his grace. And then finally... I think, and I didn't see this till yesterday, having a conversation with the kids. I think that the fact that God shows his cards in his anger, it's an indicator of how deeply and personally invested he is in this thing. Now think about it. I told my kids this. I said, listen, the moment that you start hearing dad say, fine, do what you want. I don't care. Friends, listen, the moment you hear God say, fine, you ought to be really scared. Right? So one thing we have to understand about the covenant nature of God is that when God entered into covenant with us, he, he upped the investment emotionally in our lives. I'll say it like this. Like, I entered into a covenant with my wife 21 years ago this August. And if my wife does something that appears or is unfaithful, I'm going to burn. I'm going to burn. But if a stranger is unfaithful in their covenant, it's not going to affect me, right? Why is that? Because I entered into a promise with this woman that ups the ante of my investment and my relation with her. And now I have expectations. So I expect fidelity with her and she expects fidelity with me because we entered into a promise that we are going to be faithful to each other. And God enters into this same promise with humanity. So it's not that he's just kind of walking around always mad and angry. It's that 
He made an arrangement, an agreement that the people agreed to. You're going to be our God. We're going to be your people. We're going to be faithful to you. And over and over and over and over and over again. And God is slow and he's gracious. And he's like, okay, come on back. Let's work this through. And they leave. Okay, come on back. Let's work this through. And then over the period of time, he's like, okay, we've, we've got to introduce some consequences into the dynamics of our relationship because I care about you. Okay, so all of God's consequences, discipline, judgment, and even his anger, they're all fueled by his love. They're not volatile, right? God's anger is not volatile. It's not manipulative. In fact, uh, our first point very simply is that God's anger is patient, which means that God can get angry, but he's, he's slow to anger. Now, I didn't know this until I kind of started studying this and got deep into this. In fact, it was really great because one of my kids brought this out. They said, yeah, yeah, God gets angry because, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, like God was angry. In fact, in all of the judgment narratives in Genesis, God's anger is never mentioned. I want you to think about that. It's never mentioned. So Adam and Eve willfully violate God's will. They sin, they disobey. And the, the emotion that we see out of God is not anger. It's, I, I think it's not even disappointment. I, I, I think what God is, is trying to display for us because he removes them from the garden. I think God's heartbroken there. And what you'll find in Genesis 3 is that when these guys mess up, now we know that they're, they're naked. And what does God do when they, when they sin? He slaughters an animal, which is a picture. It's a type and shadow of Jesus. And he covers them. Because he's about to remove them from the garden where life and order exists, and he's about to put them outside of that realm of his covering, and he knows now that they have to be covered. So God covers them, and then he refuses to allow them to touch the tree of life. And why is that? Because now that they have violated his, his boundary of touching the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that sinful state, I want you to imagine this now, in that sinful state, if he had not put a boundary around the tree of life, you and I would not have the hope of new creation. We would be doomed and destined to remain in a sinful state for eternity if he did not put now a boundary around the tree of life. And God doesn't use the word anger there. He's disappointed, but he's not angry. Later in the flood in Genesis chapter 6, and there's a lot of incredible theological material here, but suffice it to say, say, let me just say this. God did not pour out wrath upon humanity in the flood. The scriptures here, and there's, there's you kind of have to like, like really look into this, but the scriptures are communicating to us that there was so much violence and, the, and wickedness within all of humanity that it was just a matter of time till humanity utterly destroyed itself. The, the flood was a way of actually handing humanity over to the consequences of their own decision and actually giving them a severe mercy so that, so that what was inevitably going to happen happened sooner. And God did not, he was not angry. Sodom and Gomorrah, like I think a lot of us, we, we like to use Sodom and Gomorrah. God was angry. God was not angry in Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he withdrew. 
his protective covering. It's a picture of what happened in Genesis 6, but God was not angry. We don't see that word anger. In fact, this is really curious. The first time we see the word anger is in Exodus 4. What's happening in Exodus 4? Now, I want to read these verses to you, and then I want to give you the backstory. And I want, I'm kind of doing this as an exercise because if we just look at Exodus 4, verse 13 through 15, we can read that and go, see, see, he's, he's a mean, angry God. He's, he's unfair and he's unjust. Well, I'm going to read this, and then I want, to show, I want to share a story with you. So Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. That's, that's nice. That's good. That's kind. Like, that's fair. That's reasonable. He's being civil. And look at how God responds. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he says, okay, what about your brother, Aaron? I know that he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. And he will be glad to see you. Verse 15. So you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I will help both of you speak. And I'll teach you what to do. So God got angry at Moses. He didn't get angry. Like, we don't see anger in the flood. We don't see anger in Adam and Eve. We don't see anger in Sodom and Gomorrah. These guys are having a nice conversation and God gets angry. What is up with this? The first time, the first mention in the Bible. Well, here's what we have to understand is that in Exodus chapter one, two, and three and into four, we find that God's people, now these are God's people, this is God's family. They're being violated. They're being oppressed. They're being mistreated. They're being thrown into slavery by an unjust and wicked and cruel ruler and God is burning with compassion. Now, we preached on that two weeks ago. God comes down. He's moved with intense compassion over the situation of his people. If you're, if you're not familiar with this story, this man that God's talking to, his name is Moses. And Moses was actually spared from being murdered. Because when Moses was a baby, this wicked ruler that was over all of the children of Israel, he was executing little babies. So I want you to now to think back, like 40 years prior, God spares this man's life. And I don't think it was coincidental. I don't think it was accident. I think that God was looking 40 and 80 years ahead and he was saying, actually, like Moses is probably, he's probably, he's probably 80 at this point. So, so God is looking at Moses when Moses is in his mother's womb and he's saying, I'm going to save this child. And I'm going to save this child because this child is going to be an instrument of my redemption and grace and kindness and compassion and deliverance to the nation of Israel. Right? Moses makes a mistake and he murders a man. Do you notice that God never brings that up? God never throws that in Moses' face. Not once does God come to Moses and say, you owe me. You got to do this for me because, right? He's not Harvey Specter. Nobody got that. He's not wheeling deals. He's not the Godfather. He's not, I've got something on you. Now, that, that's not God. God doesn't come to Moses and say, now, you, you've got to do penance for the fact that you murdered a man. He doesn't do that. All he comes is and says, I've seen the pain of my people, and I am burning with compassion. Will you work with me? Will you be my guy? Will you be an instrument of deliverance for the nation of Israel? Over and over and over and over again, Moses begins to throw up excuses. And after a period of time, like Moses just wears God down. <laughs> but I, 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 I think that we, we've got to pull ourselves back 
And we've got to see the intensity and the urgency of what's happening here, that God is ready to deliver the people of Israel. And the man that he's trying to work with to do this is saying, God, I'm not going to help you. But notice that God doesn't respond, even though God feels anger in this moment towards Moses. Notice what God does. He doesn't smite him, right? He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't wipe him out and start over. He says, okay, all right, I'm going to relent and I'll let you, I'll let you have it your way and let's find, let's find another option. And so he brings Aaron. There's this, there's this verse of scripture. It's in the New Testament. Look at 2 Peter, if you would. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and uh, a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some might understand, you know, according to our understanding of slowness. But listen, he is, he is patient with you. He's slow to anger. He's willing to reason together with us. He's willing to enter into a conversation with us to bring us into his heart and his wisdom. But there, he does have limits. There does come a time when we continue to resist that the Lord then responds to that a number of ways. And I'm going to get to that in my next point. But I need us to understand right here, but that God is patient with us. Let's look at that verse. He is patient with you. And then it says this, he is not wanting anyone to perish. That's huge. Like everything that fuels the patience of God is that God does not want anyone to perish, but he's willing to enter in to conversation and he's willing to give us time so that revelation and understanding comes that will bring us to a place of repentance. That is the cornerstone heart and characteristic of our God. So God is, God can get angry, but but he's slow to anger. The second point is very simply is that God's anger is predictable. It's predictable. You ever been around someone? I can be there. like, you just, you just never know when you're going to hit an IED, right? Like you're just cruising along and then all of a sudden you hit a, you hit a, you hit a minefield and you see someone go from like zero to a hundred in their emotion, right? That's not God. God doesn't give outbursts. I mean, it's a slow, slow, long fuse. And God is very clear on where the boundaries of transgression lie. Anybody play sports? Like the lines on the field are very clear. If you, if you, if you transgress this line, that's a foul. That's out of bounds. And there's going to be consequences. And the consequences or the discipline or the conversation or the correction, initially and immediately, they are not severe. They're not harsh. Are, are, you, are, you, are you connecting with this today? Is this making sense? So his anger is predictable. Like we, we can know what we can expect. We can know what to expect in the response and the character of God. Now, I'm, I'm going to fast forward a couple of verses because there's one that I really want to get to. And I want to, I want to bring up this understanding about the nature of God's anger as it relates to consequences. When you look throughout the grand scope of God's scripture, you see that God, he gives consequences primarily in one of two categories. 
Okay, so when we read about the anger of God, it's usually falling in one of two categories. The first is this, is that God's anger is typically expressed by giving us what we want. Moms and dads, you ever dealt with a little kid who's just relentless? And then you finally give them what they want? As kind of as a form of a teaching lesson? Anybody ever done that? Okay, maybe not. Um, Well, God does. And so what God does is he, he enters into dialogue and he tries to get us to understand the wisdom of what he's asking. But he will only contend with us for so long. Because God is ultimately interested in our transformation and our maturity. Which means that after a course of time, God knows. He knows that this isn't, this isn't getting us anywhere. We're in gridlock. So fine, I'm going to give you what you want. In fact, in this story of Moses, he, en- he ends up giving Moses what he wants. And I want you to think about this because we preached about it a couple of weeks ago. In Exodus 32, when Moses is up on the mountain... Who's the person that's leading the entire nation into sin? It's the very guy that Moses and God agree on because Moses refuses to be the man. It's the consequence of Moses not doing what God asked him to do. You see this, guys, you see this all over scripture. In the book of Numbers, God brings the children of Israel right to the brink of promise, to the promised land. And he sends 12 spies in and he's like, I want you to spy out the land and I want you to come back and I want you to like see where I'm taking you. And 10 of those 12 spies come back. Anybody know what happens? They come back and they spoil the whole plan. Everything that God has been working for up to this moment spoils it. And they said, God, we we cannot do this. But Beyond that, beyond them saying there's giants in that land, there's no way we can do this, here's what they start doing. They start murmuring and they start complaining. They're saying, it would have been better if God left us in Egypt. And over and over and over again. And so you know what God does? He says, fine, you don't want to go in? Stay here. And everyone, guys, I want you to hear how grievous this is. Every single person with their own eyes and ears that saw the demonstration of God's power in the plagues They didn't have enough faith to believe that God could bring them in to the promised land. And every one of them, with the exception of two, Joshua and Caleb, died. You know what? They got what they wanted. They didn't want to go into the promised land, so God gave them what what they wanted. Here's a better example. So as we get in beyond the time of Judges, we get into the book of Kings. And many of you guys know what's going to happen here, right? The children of Israel are looking around and God saying, listen, I want to be your king. I, I want to reserve the right, the privilege and the authority to be the ultimate government in your life as a nation. And they're looking around and saying, man, when the Philistines have a king and Egypt has a king and the Amalekites have a king and every one of these nations have a king except for us and we want to be like them. And so what does God do? He continues to try to reason with them. Listen, this is a good deal. This is a good deal, you guys. None of those other kings can make water come out of rocks, and none of those other kings can fight off all your battles, and none of those other kings can make birds come out of the sky and feed you, and heavenly manna appear on the ground. Like, please, I want to be your king. And they're like, no, we want to be like everyone else. I just like little toddler tantrums. So look what happens in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8. This, this is mind-blowing. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6, when they said, give us a king to lead us, 
This displeased Samuel. So Samuel is the prophet representative and he's taking it personally. So he prayed to the Lord, verse seven, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, son, because it's not you that they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. Watch this. This is not new. They've rejected me, verse nine, or yeah, verse eight, as they have done from the very day I brought them up out of Egypt. Listen, guys, God is slow to anger. From the very day that I brought them up. Like, don't, don't you remember that after God demonstrates all of his power and brings them right to the edge of the Red Sea, right? What, what do they do? Oh, you should have sent us back. We, we, we've not even begun the road trip yet. We've not even pulled out of the driveway for God's sake. And you're already light. Where's the snacks? Are we there yet? Give me a break. As they have done from the very day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now, now listen to me. Warn them. Give them a warning. God will, listen guys, God will always give you a warning. And honestly, a lot of, he'll give you more than one. God will always give you several warnings until the full weight of the consequence of our decisions and our sin hits us. That's called grace and mercy and compassion. But we would not be preaching with integrity if we did not also tell you that part of the character and the nature of God is he is a God who corrects and confronts and judges and disciplines us unto righteousness and his character. So he says, now listen to them and warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now you can read the rest of this, but this is essentially what God tells Samuel to tell to all the nation of Israel. This king that you choose will take your children. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. Read it. Read it from your, in your Bibles. This is the language. He will take them. He will not ask. He will take them. They will become the king's property. He will take your property and he will use it the way that he wants to use it. This is God warning them. Look at their response right here in verse 18. This is, oh, fear of the Lord. When that day comes, this is God. When that day comes, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 18, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19, but the people ugh, refused to listen to Samuel. And it says this, no, they said. I'm telling you, like, this is the closest thing that we can see in the scriptures to dealing with an irrational, unreasonable three-year-old. No! I want king. <laughs> we want a king over us. Look at the next verse here. Verse 20. And then we'll be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he re 
repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And you know, many of you know the end of the story. It gets really, really, really bad. It gets really bad. So bad that over the course of time, then God ends up sending the nation of Israel out to be captives and exile in, under the rule of other kings, which is also, I want you to think about this, which was also giving them what they wanted because they kept worshiping the gods of other nations. God was saying, don't worship the gods of Baal. Don't worship the gods of Ashtoreth. Don't worship the gods of Molech. Worship me. I am the good God who has saved you. No, we want to worship them. Fine, fine. Worship them in their own country then. See, this is the way that God deals with us, right? He pleads. He speaks to us. He tries to share wisdom with us. He tries to get us into the logic of his heart. And when we repeatedly refuse this, Part of God's anger and judgment and correction is us simply getting our own way. The second category of consequence is when God withdraws his protective hand. And we see this in the garden. The garden represents the domain that is underneath the protective covering of God. And God removes them out of the garden, which means you are no longer underneath the realm of my protective covering. Right? The realm of God's protective covering is where he turns chaos into order. Are you guys seeing that? In Genesis chapter 1, everything was chaotic, and God comes and he brings order. Right? Where the kingdom of God is, there's order, peace, and life. And when we're removed from underneath the realm of God's order, there's chaos and there's death. And part of how God deals with us is when we continue to demand our way. It's like the prodigal son who removes himself out from underneath the realm of order of father's house. And God is essentially saying, I'm going to hide my face from you, which means I'm not going to be the one who is going to protect you and cover you. So, so God's anger is predictable. All right, all right, finally, let me just say this, and Jonathan, you can come on up. Guys, God's anger is pure. And probably what I want to communicate here, there's a lot to say, but I want to communicate that God's, God's anger and his consequences, they always have a purpose. When God, when God meets out or when he, when he brings consequences to us, he never does it so that he is satisfied. Like sometimes if we're really honest... Sometimes we explode in anger because it's more satisfying to us. Something is being fulfilled, right? We just, we just got to get it out. You know what I'm talking about? God never does that. There's not something broken inside of God that needs to be fixed, that requires him to lash out. His anger is pure which means the motive of his decisions always has a purpose to bring us back into fellowship with him and to help us see the error of our ways and the wisdom and the goodness of his. Look with me at Psalm 103. And I think this is a good place for us to come to the table together. Psalm 103, we're gonna look at verse eight. The Lord... uh, 
He is compassionate, friends. And he's gracious. And he is slow to anger. And he is full, 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 overflowing with love. Verse 9. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Listen, God's anger is for a moment. For it to satisfy a purpose. He doesn't stay angry. God's not angry with you. He will not harbor his anger forever. Verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Like as it relates to his relationship with humanity, he should be angry all the time. But he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us. Friends, here's here's the heart that I want you to, to, to capture today. There's there's not a lot for us to like do with this message. It's an understanding of who your God is. And if if there's any filter or if there's any block inside of you that says that God is angry with me today, the purpose of this message is by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit to remove that filter. Because if you do not see God rightly, you cannot relate to him intimately. And so today I am praying that whether it was an experience you had with a dad or a coach or an abusive spouse or a a pastor even, that somehow put this lens on you that God is a mean and angry and cruel and unjust God, I am praying today that that would be lifted and that you could draw near to God because that is the starting point and it is the foundation of your life in God to know that he is good and he is gracious and he is compassionate and his love knows no limits. And while he may discipline you, it is always fueled out of the good intention to bring you to himself. Friends, would you stand with me this morning? I want to invite you to come forward. You can exit on the left and come and receive today the body and the blood of Jesus and we'll take this together as a family.
also a really huge theological issue, but when Jesus came, the full weight of God's judgment was satisfied in Jesus. Some people like to talk about the wrath of God being satisfied. Um, What I want to make clear is that when Jesus came and he laid down his life as an innocent man, the judgment of God was satisfied. It was satisfied. God doesn't need to judge you because he judged Christ. The scripture tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the scripture tells us that he who knew no sin, not an ounce or a trace of sin, he actually became sin for us, that the sins of all of humanity, past, present, and future, they were placed on him. Friends, Jesus went to the cross for you. And for those of you who are listening online today, So today, if you feel like God is angry with you or if you feel like you've got stuff to make up or penance to do, I I want you to know that, number one, he's not. Number two, that you can't because it was satisfied in Jesus, right? God placed all of the sin and the consequences of that sin on Christ so that you and I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, just hours before he went to become that living sacrifice, he had a meal with his friends. And then he he gave this example to them. And he says, guys, listen, this this bread that we're about to eat, he breaks it and he goes, in the same way I'm breaking this bread, my body's gonna be broken for you. And every time now, when you come to this fellowship meal together, I want you to remember that I am the one who was broken for you. So take and receive my body. Friends, let's receive the body of Christ today. And then he took the cup and he says, your sins are forgiven, friends. The wrath of God is not against you. Your sins are forgiven. Friend, you need to know today God's not angry with you. He's not an angry God and he's not angry at you. So you can draw near to him. He's safe. He's predictable. And he's trustworthy. Because as Sidron mentioned earlier today, he loves you with a pure and a holy and an everlasting love. So friends, let us receive the cup of God's grace and forgiveness together. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Is that a weight off of anybody's shoulders today? Let's just thank the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Jonathan. Thank you, God. Oh, God, our hearts are grateful.
bless you. May he bless you, cover you and crown you with his goodness. May he be gracious to you. May you feel and touch and experience the grace of God this week as you're sent into your assignments, as you're sent into your vocational assignments, your relational assignments. May the grace of God go ahead of you. May the grace of God surround you. May the Lord cover you. May he keep you. And I pray that this week you, you would feel like you would, you would take it into your very being, the smile of God on your life, right? He doesn't have a furrowed brow and he's not frowning at you. I, I, I pray that you would, you would literally feel the smile of God on your life, even when you blow it, that you would feel the smile of God on your life and you would radiate that to a world around you that needs to experience that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you guys.